You're listening to American Time American Timelines. Time American Timelines by History for Jerks. By History for Jerks. By History for Jerks. The greatest podcast ever. American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. History for Jerks. History, history for Jerks. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines. I'm Amy. And I'm Helen Dorothy Martin, an American actress of stage and television best known for my roles as Wanda on the CBS sitcom Good Times and as Pearl Shea on the NBC sitcom 227. I remember her. I was born in St. Louis, Missouri. I remember Pearl. Yep, I was born in 1909. She was awesome. Yep, I went to Fisk University. All right, that's Joe. And this <laughs> is the podcast that brings you all the crazy, nostalgic, interesting events from the past. I was in a movie with Kim Fields. And today today we are going to discuss 1964. 1964, that's right. We left off, if you remember, uh, at the first ever New York City comic convention. That's right. Where all the panelists died. No, that's not right. Freaky accidents or of old age or yeah. aneurysms later, later in much life. later yes. much later in life and that brings us to we're going to start off in august okay we august got a lot first, to cover so we got to go we quick. do i'll do i don't have a lot august 1st 1964 yes was a saturday okay japan's hiroshima peace flame has been burning continuously since it was lit on this day Okay. And it will remain lit until all nuclear bombs on the planet are destroyed and the planet is free from the threat of nuclear annihilation. So when did... Uh, this is a dumb question. Saturday, August 1st, 1964 is when they lit it. So it was a 20-year okay. anniversary kind uh, of deal, maybe. Uh, 64, so no, it was like 19 years, but you guys are close to around the same time. I don't think it's anything to do with when it was, but the peace, the flame of peace was designed by Kenzo Tanje, mm -hmm. a professor of the University of Tokyo in 1964, and there's like a pedestal. Mm -hmm. You can see it online. It's like there's, uh, I don't know, it's a shape of hands pressed together at the wrist and bent back so that the palms open up towards the sky. Uh, the design is to console the souls of victims who craved water and wished for nuclear abolition and everlasting world peace. Yep. Yep. So Sad. Yep. In 1994, the flame was used to light the sacred fire for the Asian Games held in Hiroshima City. Mm. And that same day mm -hmm. that that was lit, we have a new number one song on the Billboard charts by the Beatles again. All right. Are you ready to hear it? I'm ready. Too loud. It's been a hard day's night, and I've been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night. I should be sleeping like a log. But when I get over you, I find the things that you do make me feel. I was going home in the car, and Dick Lester suggested the title A Hard Day's Night from something Ringo said. I had used it in his own right, but it was an off-the-cuff remark by Ringo. You know, one of those meta-pro-isms. A Ringo-ism where he said it not to be funny, just said it. So Dick Lester said, we're going to use that title. And the next morning, I brought it to in the song because there was a specific little competition between Paul and I as to who got the A-side and who got the hit singles. That was John Lennon, quoted in 1980. Okay, so they got the title before they wrote the lyrics? Yeah, they had the title that they wanted to do. I see. And then he brought it in, brought that song in. 
The genesis of the song was later recalled by Evening Standard journalist Maureen Cleave, who was a friend of the Beatles. One day, I picked up John in a taxi and took him to Abbey Road for a recording session. The tune to the song, A Hard Day's Night, was in his head. The words scrawled on a birthday card from a fan to his little son, Julian. When I get home to you, it said, I find my tiredness is through. Rather a feeble line about tiredness, I said. Okay, he said. Will you stop doing that voice, please? Well, this is her voice. And borrowing my pen, instantly changed it to the slightly suggestive, when I get home to you, I find the things that you do will make me feel all right. The other Beatles were in the studio, and of course, the wonderful George Martin. John sort of hummed the tune to the others. They had no copies of the words or anything else, and three hours later, I was none the wiser about how they'd done it, but the record was made. And you can see the birthday card in the British Library. Okay. Maureen Cleave. That's exactly how she sounded. I don't think she It's a was... spot-on per- impression. Rich no, Little I'm, couldn't even I'm do gonna, it better. I'm going to do nay on that one. No, you don't know. And then August 15, 1964, the Beatles are knocked violently off the charts mm-hmm. by a little-known man named Dean Martin. Yeah. Dean Martin, huh? Yeah. Although this song was written 20 years earlier. This song oh, hit yeah. Everybody loves somebody. Recorded by everybody somebody. else. But uh, it's so funny. The Beatles' music in this is so different. This, yeah. Um, although still a major recording artist, Martin had not had a top forty hit since 1958. Oh. With the British invasion ruling the U.S. charts, few had hopes that an Italian crooner would have had been singing mainly standards for almost twenty years would sway many teenagers. But and Martin resented rock and roll. And his attitude created conflict at home with his 14-year-old son, Dean Paul Martin, who, like many teenagers at the time, worshipped pop groups like the Beatles. He told his son, I'm going to knock your pallies off the charts. And on August 15, <laughs> 1964, he did just that. Everybody Loves Somebody knocked the Beatles a hard day's night off the number one slot on the Billboard charts, going straight up to the top of both the Billboard Hot 100 and the Pop Standard Singles chart ladder for eight weeks. Awesome. And then we're going to just jump right to the next song on August 22nd. It's a hit parade here. Yeah, August 22nd, we have a little bit better of a song by the Supremes. Oh, yeah, I like this one. It's a great song. You can't not like this. If you don't like this, you're an asshole. And I want you to turn off our podcast No, no, stop. Some people might not like it. Maybe it brings back bad memory or something. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I will erase your memories for you. Just send me your memories in a jar. You'll erase the them. Initially, the producers argued over who would sing the song as it had been cut in the same key as Mary Wilson's voice, but since Barry Gordy had assigned the lead singer role to Diana Ross, the producers eventually gave the song to her. Oh. She sang it in her usual high register in the recording studio on April 8th. As a result, Ross was told to sing the sing in a lower register and begrudgingly complied with Holland Dozier Holland's To the Letter Formula, whatever that is. I don't know what that means. Mary Wilson and Florence Ballard's vocal contribution was significant in bringing a fresh yet hypnotic sexiness to the overall sound of the song, while remaining true to the backup arrangements that Lamont Dozier had set down. That's fascinating. Upon hearing the song's playback, an excited Ross rushed to Gordy's office and told him to come to the studio to listen. Upon hearing playback, a satisfied Gordy nodded, saying to the producers in the group that the song had potential to be a top ten hit. It was. He, he was, was right. right. He was right. He was correct. And I I could listen to that all day. And then on Thursday, August 27, 1964, mm-hmm. Mary Poppins was released. Oh, that was a biggie. Yeah. This was an American musical fantasy film directed by... I don't know. Robert Stevenson. Didn't know that. Produced by Walt Disney. Songs and composed by the Sherman Brothers. You got hiccups? No, Sherman Brothers, Sherman Helmsley, and... No, Sherman Helmsley <laughs> Sherman. was not one of the Sherman Brothers. He might have been. I, you're making some shit up over there. Anyway, this is based on P.L. Travers' book series, Mary Poppins. And the film, did you know that it combines live action and animation? I did know starring that. Starring Julie Andrews. I've seen it. Don't you feel like that, like, that throws it off when the cartoons come in? Like, it's... Not when you're a kid and you're watching it. I'm not a kid. Well, then that's probably why. Did you see it when you were a kid? No, I don't think so. I, yeah. had, I had no interest in it. It was kind of a girl's movie, maybe. 
Well, that's sexist of you. Um, I'm not trying <laughs> to hold back women and this Me Too movement, but um, yes, it's a chick flick. Anyway, <laughs> in her feature film debut is Mary Poppins, who visits a dysfunctional family in London and employs her unique brand of lifestyle to improve the family's dynamic. Julie Andrews stars along Dick Van Dyke, mm-hmm. David Tomlinson, and Glynis Johns. Yep. The film was shot entirely at the Walt Disney Studios in Burbank, California. All right. Home of the Burbank Bulldogs, where Vic Tabak went to school. Uh, and they used painted London background scenes. Did you know that? Yeah, you can kind of tell. You can? Yeah. It doesn't look real? I, th- I feel like it, if I can remember it right. Do you want to guess how many Academy Awards this received? Probably three. Nope, a lot more than that. Seven? Nope, higher. Twelve? Higher. Twenty? Lower. <laughs> <laughs> Let's play this game all night yeah, long. Everyone's going to love this part. <laughs> Let's just like record this going like 20 minutes and then we'll just keep... Okay. 13. Look, 13, okay. Including Best Picture. Mm. Yeah, I did, I did hear that. This was a record for any film released by Walt Disney. It won five. Best Actress for Andrews, Best Film Editing, Best Original Music Score, Best Visual Effects, and Best Original Song for Chim Chim Cherie. Oh, it, it, I'm sorry. It received 13 Academy Awards nominations, but won five. Sorry. I was going to say 13. That's, yeah, that's a lot. That is a lot. And the Sherman Brothers claim to have made up the word supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But the writers of a 1949 song called Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious or something mm-hmm. unsuccessfully sued Disney. Oh, did they? Yeah, Disney lawyers argued both were nonsense words, so you can't... Um, you can't it, copyright it those. Yeah, you can't copyright that. But I have found on YouTube the other version, and I'd like to just play it for you to Does see it if sound? you think it sounds the same. Is it supposed to... The song supposed to sound? Just listen. We like to play a song with That sounds just like it. Yep. First you count and trees and ten, and then you say it over again. It's super califagilistic, espialidogious. Yeah, that sounds just like Almost it. Almost exactly the same, so mm-hmm. it's obviously a copy, I think. But the the tune isn't the same. Yeah, the tune's not the same, but anyway. The word is. Disney lawyers argue that they're both nonsense words. Uh, lyricist Robert Sherman had searched for nearly two weeks for a catchy phrase that could be Mary Poppins' anthem. He came across the perfect title when his young son, Jeff, came home from school one day and announced that he had just received a polio vaccine. Thinking that the vaccine had been administered as a shot, Sherman asked, did it hurt? He replied, no, they gave it to me on a cube of sugar and I swallowed it down. Sherman Hmm. tried the idea on his brother the following morning. Uh, Richard M. Sherman put the phrase to music and a spoonful of sugar was born. Oh, all right. Yeah. There you go. A couple of things Spoons full of sugar helps get rid of hiccups. Did you Spoon know that? Spoonful of sugar. That's the only hiccup cure that works all every time. Yeah. It can't be good for you to Well, of course it's of not. Sugar. Of course it's not. So but. just deal with the hiccups, you pricks. Ah, uh, sorry. That wasn't nice. Friday, it August 28, nice. 1964. According to TheGuardian.com, uh, in a room in the Delmonico Hotel at Park Avenue mm-hmm. and 59th in New York City, the Beatles encountered Bob Dylan for the first oh, time. Oh, that's cool. Bob Dylan offered the Beatles marijuana. Oh, and they tried it? Uh, yep, and he was shocked to find out that they weren't regular smokers. So he actually introduced them to marijuana because he thought they were smokers because he misheard the lyric, I can't hide, I can't hide. Uh, until I, until like, I get high. Yeah, he thought it was, I get high, I get high. I think I, I thought it was that, too. I thought it was, I get high. Well, you were wrong, too. No, I was wrong, because Bob Dylan was wrong. So then the Beatles immediately got into a, it's, a, it's clearly a gateway drug, because then they started doing LSD and everything else. They started sucking each other. No, up. that's none of that. Ringo Starr was the first to be offered a smoke, and he was ignorant of dope etiquette. He chugged through that first joint like a Stevedore attacking his first woodbine of the morning and collapsed oh in a giggling mess. Oh, boy. Brian Epstein became so stoned, he could only squeak, I'm so high, I'm up on the ceiling. <laughs> Paul McCartney believed he'd attained true mental clarity for the first time in his life and instructed the Beatles roadie and major domo 
Mal Evans to write down everything he said henceforth. Dylan, meanwhile, lost his cool and began answering the hotel phone by shouting, This is Beatlemania here! Jeez. Yep. How about that? That's pretty cool. That's I, the coolest story. That's the coolest thing we've ever talked about on this podcast. Well, we've talked about some pretty cool things. Not cool things as that. That was cool. Well, what about the time when we talked about um, Sammy Davis Jr. shoving jewelry up his ass? Sammy Davis Jr. did shove a whole bunch of jewelry up his ass. So, see? And then they dug up his body and they exhumed the jewelry out of his asshole. That's, that's right. It's exactly what happened. Yes, I think that's exactly what happened. It's probably accurate. Yeah. I don't know if we cited sources back then. That was like our first episode, yeah. maybe. And then Tuesday, September 1st, 1964, mm-hmm. uh, we are blessed with the Goldwater Rule. Are you familiar with oh, the Goldwater Rule? I am not, sir. Well, it's kind of relevant today because it's the informal name given to Section 7, Section 7 of the American Psychiatric Association's Principles of Medical Ethics, mm-hmm. which states... That it is unethical for psychiatrists to give a professional opinion about public figures whom they have not examined in person and oh. from whom they have not obtained consent to discuss their mental health in public statements. It's named after former U.S. Senator and 1964 presidential candidate Barry Goldwater, Barry Goldwater whoever said he was crazy. Uh, the issue arose in the 19... 19- I bet. I wonder if people are probably cite that now. Oh, that's what I'm going to get to here. Oh, okay. Uh, this issue arose when Fact published the article, The Unconscious... Or no, the Unconscious of a Conservative, a special issue on the mind of Barry Goldwater. Mm-hmm. The magazine polled psychiatrists about U.S. Senator Barry Goldwater and whether he was fit to be president, and Goldwater sued magazine editor Ralph Ginsburg and managing editor Warren Borrowson. And in Goldwater versus Ginsburg, uh, July of 1969, received damages totaling $75,000, which is $512,000 today. So regarding Donald Trump, in 2016 and 2017, Regarding Donald Trump, our batshit crazy current president, who in future uh, podcasts, I'm sure we will be talking about how he's um, hopefully incarcerated lunatic bin or somewhere. He's in some kind of I mean, it's going to go down in history as the most insane person that's ever had this much. Yeah. In 2016 and 2017, a number of psychiatrists and clinical psychologists faced criticism for violating the Goldwater rule as they claimed that Donald Trump displayed. Quote, an assortment of personality problems, including grandiosity, a lack of empathy, and malignant narcissism. Mm-hmm. And then he has a dangerous mental illness, despite having never examined him. Did they get in trouble for that? Um, John Gardner, a uh, practicing psychologist and the leader of the group Duty to Warn, stated in April 2017 that, quote, we have an ethical responsibility to warn the public about Donald Trump's dangerous mental illness. I would Unquote. say... The uh, APSAA, American Psychoanalytic Association Mm -hmm. of America, I guess, a different organization from the APA, sent a letter on June 6, 2017, that highlighted differences between the APA and the APSAA ethical guidelines, stating that the American Psychiatric Association's ethical stance on the Goldwater Rule applies to its members only. So the APSAA does not consider political commentary by its individual members an ethical matter. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I guess until they got around it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And then on Saturday, September 5th, 1964, mm-hmm. we got another number one song on the Billboard chart by the Animals. Are you familiar oh, with yeah. them? Do you know what song it is? Gosh, now I can't remember. House of the Rising Sun. Yes, it's a traditional folk song, sometimes called Rising Sun Blues. This is a great song. Tells of a life gone wrong in New Orleans. Many versions urge a sibling of parents and children to avoid the same fate. So what? What's the deal? This with is that? the most successful commercial version. Mm-hmm. Uh, like many classic folk ballads, "House of the Rising Sun" is of uncertain authorship. Oh, okay. They don't know who wrote it. It's just it. like an old folk song. Yeah, musicologists say that it's based on the tradition of broads, broadside ballads, and thematically, it has some resemblances to the 16th-century ballad, "The Unfortunate Rake." Huh. According to Alan Lomax, Rising Sun was used as the name of a body house in two traditional English songs, and it was also a name for English pubs. All right. Yeah, I can isn't see that, that funny? Yeah. We don't know who wrote this. That's a good song. It is. Mm-hmm. This version's the most famous. Yes. And there you go. That's that. 
That was pretty cool. And then Friday, September 11, 1964, during their first American tour, the Beatles refused to play their scheduled concert in Jacksonville this night until the audience was desegregated. Oh, really? Yep. That's awesome. The concert was originally to have been racially segregated, but the Beatles refused to perform until they received an assurance from the promoter that the audience would be mixed. We never play to segregated audiences, and we aren't going to start now. I'd sooner lose out appearance money, John Lennon said. God, don't even try to do the accent. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a Don't even. Oh, my God. We never play to segregated okay. audiences. All right. We never play to segregated audiences. No. If don't. I knew John Lennon, I'd be able to do it. No, you wouldn't. The group had been due to fly to Jacksonville on the morning of September 9th, uh, 1964, but their aeroplane was diverted to Key West when Hurricane Dora struck. Most of Jacksonville was left without electricity for several days, but because of hurricane damage, 9,000 of the 32,000 ticket holders were unable to get to the venue. They said the hurricane had passed when we flew into Jacksonville, but it was windy as hell and it was dark with heavy black clouds all over. It had cleared a bit, but there were still turbulent winds. And as we were approaching, we could see the devastation. Palm trees falling over and a mess laying everywhere, said George Harrison. And okay. th- that's unrelated to the fact that it was segregated, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Friday, September 25th, 1964. Sitcom Gomer Pyle USMC premieres. Sit- what? The sitcom Gomer Pyle USMC. Is that the same as just Gomer Pyle? That was the Gomer Pyle show. It was um, set in a Marine base. Yes, I remember. I used to watch that. The word Vietnam was never once mentioned in its five-year run. Was it supposed to be the Vietnam soldiers? I guess. It was a spinoff of the Andy Griffith show, and the pilot episode was aired as the season finale of the fourth season of its parent series on May 18th, 1964. Did you watch it? No, I never watched it. You never watched Gomer Pyle? No. Oh, God, I used to love that show when I was little. Well, you're like 40 years older than me. No, so that's I wasn't true. around in the 60s. I wasn't born yet. Well, I wasn't either, but it was on <laughs> syndication Burn. for years. The show ran for, no, we had MTV. The show ran for a total oh, of 150 half-hour episodes. Rubbing it in. <laughs> spanning for five seasons. We had cable. You did, I know. I uh, had stuck watching Gomer Pyle. Uh, it was in black and white the first season, then color for the remaining. Starting, I always remember it in black and who white. Who starred in this? Who played Gomer Pyle? Jim Pyle? Neighbors. Jim Neighbors, the greatest... American artist in history, That's Jim right. Neighbors. A hell of a singer, too. Remember his albums that he would sell on TV? Oh, yeah. He also knows how to please the ladies. I think I've heard that, Sexually. too. Sexually. All right. And then September 26, 1964, we have another number one song. Mm-hmm. Do you want to take a guess if it is or is not the Beatles? I'm going to guess that it is. It is not the Beatles. Oh. It's Roy Orbison. Pretty Woman. It's actually called Oh Pretty Woman. Oh. The lyrics tell the story of a man who sees a pretty woman walking by. He yearns for her and wonders if as beautiful as she is, she might be lonely like he is. We know what the song says, honey. At the last minute, she turns back and joins him. This was inspired by Orbison's wife, Claudette. Oh. Interrupting a conversation to announce she was going out, when Orbison asked if she had enough cash, his co-writer Bill Dees interjected, a pretty woman never needs any money. Hmm. And then, did you know that in 1989, the rap group Two Live Crew recorded a parody of this song? No. Using an alternate title, Pretty Woman. This I was bet on their awful. album As Clean as They Want to Be. Uh, Two Live Crew sampled the distinctive bass line here mm-hmm. from the Orbison song, but replaced the original lyrics with talk about a hairy woman and her bald headed friend, and their appeal to the singer as well as. So it wasn't filthy, dirty, like all their other stuff was? I'm sure it was. Um, but Orbison's publisher, Acuff Rose Music, sued Two Live Crew on the basis that the fair use doctrine did not permit uh, reuse of the copyrighted material for profit. Did and they win? The, the case went all the way to the United States Supreme Court, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who loves Two Live Crew, uh, decided it was Two Live... The court decided in Two Live Crew's favor. Oh, did they? Greatly expanding the doctrine of fair use and extending the protections to parodies created for profit. It is considered a seminal fair use decision. In fact, this podcast is a parody of yeah. a real podcast. Keep keep so, that in mind. This is a parody of a real podcast. This yeah. isn't a real podcast. This is a parody podcast. 
everyone a parody podcast that's why we can play these songs <laughs> we can we really can because it's a parody that's why yeah that's right that's right uh, yeah 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 okay and then that brings us to october 8th i understand you have a little story for us yes i do on october 8th i am going to tell um the story of lucille and gordon cork miller lucille and Gordon Cork Miller. That's yes. their work. Then Cork Miller is their name. That, well, that was his his nickname. Like Cork, like a cork Miller? in a box in a bottle. So it's not Cork Miller, one word. No, Cor- Miller is their last name. Oh, Cork Miller. Okay, gotcha. So they're married. Okay, they're a married couple, a sexy married couple. He's a dentist. Oh, I know a couple of dentists. Um, he, uh was very unhappy though he wanted to be a doctor he's a sad dentist because he wanted to be a real doctor because dentists are fucking frauds now don't start dentist if there's any dentists listening please tweet us at history for jerks and just let us know you're listening so we can stop um, hurting your feelings that's a good idea yeah and so otherwise we'll keep on hurting your feelings she though was having an affair with arthwell hayton you know what there's a lot of um it seems like you're picking stories on purpose of just infidelity. Like, you're trying to just tell me something. You want to just tell me something? No. You have a confession to make? No, no. Okay, he, she's having an affair with who? Arthwell Hayton. Arthwell Hayton, yeah. And she wanted to marry him. She wanted to marry Arthwell? Yes. But she had to get out of her dead-end marriage with a friggin' dentist who can't even be a real doctor. Yes, and Hayton was married to somebody else, too. Oh, so she's got to kill her, her so, first. Um, the other problem. And then where was, do the rapes come in? The other problem was that Hayton wasn't the least bit interested in marrying her. Oh, but he was having an affair still, or leaving his wife oh, to marry he, her. Yeah, he wanted to keep it on the side. That's right, on the deal. So, um, side check. In the latter half of 1964. Yeah, the latter half. Yes. Uh, her marriage October. to uh, Gordon Miller was in its final stages, one way or the other. Gordon Cork Miller? They were fighting all the time. Kind of like us on a podcast? Right. Were they recording a podcast? Yeah, while they were fighting? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I think they like did. Us. I think they did. So she had- Were they ar- fighting over what they call their fans, like time heads? And were they fighting because she didn't like birthdays? Yes. Okay. They probably were. <laughs> she had already filed for divorce oh, okay. in San Bernardino in July. San Bernardino. Okay. But she had told her her attorney right after th- that that her that she and her husband had reconciled. Oh, what's the attorney's name? You know that? I do, but and it'll come in later. Oh, it'll come in later. Okay. Yeah. I was hoping to say a stupid name and say y'all after it, like I do sometimes. She didn't explain to them why or how they managed to put their differences aside, but it soon became evident that they had reconciled for at least one night. Really? Yeah. They reconciled, huh? And that like things got hot and heavy that night. Yeah. Like they made up and found chick about. Yeah. Really? And that'll come back later, too. Are you, do you have any details on that? Uh, that'll come back later, I said. Oh. Okay. So, Lucille and Arthwell Hayton had begun their affair in November of 1963. Okay. After Lucille had, he, he according to him, shown her desire to him. She showed her desire to him? Yeah, he said, she showed signs she liked to be around me. Mm. I showed no sign it was unpleasant to me. That was his quote. Oh, he didn't like her at first. So over the next six months, they did these little clandestine rendezvous around Southern California. Rendezvous. Um, But she then she started pressuring him. He was a socially prominent attorney. Okay, he's a big deal. And she she started pressuring him to leave his wife. And his wife was in chronic ill health at the time. Poor lady, she's sick. Yep. And he's He's pulling a clandestine pulling a Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich did that. Yeah, his wife had cancer, and, oh, and, and he cheated, cheated on, on her. her while he was indicting he was, Clinton. Yeah, while he was trying to get, yeah, yeah. it was like, me thinks thou doth protest too much. Like, mm-hmm. you, you grill somebody else for doing something that you feel bad about That's doing right. yourself. While his wife was dying, I thought that was the other guy, the other the Democrat guy did that, too. He did uh, it, too. What was his name? John, John Edwards. John Edwards, yep. yeah. So, anyway, he... He not only then tells her that he has no intention of leaving, her, leaving Elaine, his wife. Yeah, he can't he, leave Elaine. She's sick, bro. He Come stops. On, just... He decides he's going to stop seeing Lucille. Oh, no more clandestine rendezvous for you. On April 24th, 1964. April 24th? April 24th. Did I give you the wrong date? 
What date did I give you? You gave me April 4th. No, uh, April 24th, honey. You wrote April 4th. Oh, are you sure you didn't look at it wrong? I can pull out that. No, don't worry about it. it. Well, let's just say it was April 4th. Yeah, nobody's going to care. Who cares? Well, how about we'll just say this. Oh, April 24th? Well, that was 20 days after. Three high school friends in Hoboken, New Jersey, Tony Conza, Peter DiCarlo, and Angelo Baldessar opened the first Blimpy Submarine Sandwich restaurant. And also... Oh, did it? was tw- it that old? Yeah. Also, 20 days after David Cross was born, an American stand-up comedian was born in Atlanta. Oh, okay. So, his, he was sailing on his boat near Catalina Island. Oh, the Catalina Wine. When his there. wife was found dead in their home. Oh, wait, he was on a boat when she was found dead? Arthwell Hayden, yeah. Arthwell Hayden was on a boat? Yeah, I'm on a boat. (laughs) According to investigators, Lucille Miller was the last person to see her alive. Uh Uh-oh, Lucille Miller was the one he had an affair with. That's right. Us clandestine rendezvous. Elaine was found face down in her bed, her face deep in a pillow. Face deep. At the time of her death, her death was determined to be of natural causes because she was so sick. Oh, yeah, she was really sick. So Lucille probably was like, oh, yeah. Wait, but how was Lucille the last known to see her? Can you say that? Yeah, she was the last known to see her. Why alive. would she have seen her? She was over. Enemies. She was friends with. She was friends with both of them. Oh, and she was secretly first. having an affair with him. Oh, but she so was over there off. at her at their at their house seeing her. Oh, wait a minute. This begs the. This reminds me of the lyrics. What. The famous lyrics by Kelly Clarkson. We started off friends. All right. It was cool, but it was all pretend. And yeah, yeah. Okay. Since you've been gone. That's enough. We're just going to quote Kelly Clarkson. No, we're not. Okay. Um, so yeah. Arthur Hayton, Arthwell, sorry. Arthwell Hayton, Arthwell. He was never suspected of anything in his wife's death. Okay. Um, and no one was ever charged with a crime in connection with her death. And that's it? That's the whole story? Just this no. happened and that's no. it? Well, that's pretty anticlimactic. No. So when she, with her gone out of the picture, yeah. Lucille assumed that Hayton would be more amenable to marriage. Okay. But he still told her, get get lost, oh, and then she begins that. to harass him. It's just like a, leith, it's like a fatal attraction. Oh, sort fatal of thing attraction. She's like, what on. the hell? Why wouldn't you? But she's, isn't she still married to a uh, cork guy? Yeah. Cork Miller? Yep. In the summer of 1964, she began calling him so frequently that he changed his telephone number. Oh, my goodness. And, and that's then not she easy. found his new number, and she kept calling oh, him Oh, yeah, that. in the 60s, to change your number, oh, you had, had to go act through of Congress. hell. You had to go yep. traipsing up. You had to get signatures, first yep. of all. You have to uh, meet the, uh, the mayor. The mayor. You have yeah. to talk to the mayor. You have to have coffee with him. You have to meet the mayor's wife. You have that's to right. brush the hair of the neighbor's dog. Okay. The na- I mean, the mayor's neighbor's dog. So, so he changes his phone number, and then she finds his new number and keeps calling him. Oh, and you can't change it again. If you change it once, you can't change it again. You got to do all that stuff again? No way. One night she called him two times in the, like in, in a row, and he, he hung up without off. speaking both times. Oh, yeah. He'd take and it so off then the she called a third time, and oh, he picked no. it up. And she says, Arthwell, you better not hang up this phone if you know what's good for you. Uh-oh, that's a threat. I've tried to be nice. If you don't see me tonight, I'm going to see you. I'll go into the San Bernardino courthouse, and if you ever thought you were a lawyer before, your reputation will be ruined. That's because I will tell everyone about our clandestine rendezvous, and they will no longer be clandestine. That's they will right. be they un- destined. Non-clandestine. They will be destined. Unclan- they will be destined rendezvous. Yep. So he responded that he would report her to police if she continued to harass him. Yeah, lady. And we got to keep says, these rendezvous clandestine. Look, sonny boy, if you think your reputation will be ruined, your life won't be worth two cents. Oh, two cents, not two shits? So at this same time, yeah. Lucille told her, her attorney to drop the divorce suit against her husband. Oh, she said, hey, better stay in this marriage. And they went to a marriage counselor, and they agreed to have, and then they decided they were going to have another child. So do you think a, a marriage... A fourth co- child. They want to have another kid? Yeah, now marriage they want to have... Marriage counselor is like... Okay, so the problem is just that you were having a bunch of clandestine rendezvous. Yeah. That's the main problem. What if instead you just have a baby? So then in September of 1964... Oh, and you killed a woman. That's the other thing. Yeah. You killed a woman because you were having clandestine rendezvous and wanted that guy, and he doesn't want you, so why don't you guys have a baby? Right. So in, night, in September of 1964, yeah. 
Um, Cork tells his mother that they had been successful in conceiving a child. Oh, his mother? Yep. He says he, they're going to have another baby. Okay. He said Lucille wants one because she feels it'll do much to weld our home and make it a happier one. Babies always fix any strife. Less than a month later, Gordon Miller was dead. Oh, no. Gordon Miller's dead? Cork Miller? Yeah. Cork Miller's dead? And the sick yep. wife? So on October 8th, 1964. Oh, that's where we're at. You mean the same day that the Republic of China entered the Vietnam War with the first contingent of 15 uniformed army officers led by Lieutenant General Tang Ting Yuan? You nailed that name. The same day that the... FBI foiled a plot by the United Clans of America to bomb the Evers Hotel in Philadelphia, Mississippi, where the remaining civil rights workers associated Ugh. with the Council of Federated Organizations. Can you imagine if they would have carried staying. that out? But the agents went to the home of the Klansmen and seized a cache of dynamite that they had stockpiled there after having been tipped off by an informer. Oh my God, that was a crisis of verdict. Yes, and this also happened the same day that the Beatles recorded "She's a Woman" and and in Abbey Road. Song. On the same day, drummer Ringo Starr passed his driving test. Okay, yes. And the same day, CeCe Winans was born. On October 8th, on a dark road near Montclair, California, yeah. Lucille's story um, is yes. that what happened? She decides, they were at home, and yeah. um, she Gordon, or Cork, or whatever you want to call him, yeah. he, he had a problem with barbiturates. Okay. He was an addict. And he was always... Corked was? Yeah, he was always popping pills. And barbiturates. he wasn't feeling good. What? And so she... Hold on, what, what exactly are barbiturates? I remember like I took that in health class in like middle school. And they called barbiturates. And I think I it's a class remember. of drugs. And I, But are they like uppers or downers? Downers, they're I think. Downers? Yeah, I think they're downers. Because barbiturates just sounds appealing to me i just wanted to take you it just want called some barbiturates i don't know what they do or what they are well he had an issue with them okay and so he she was gonna make him some hot chocolate but she realized that they for, didn't for the barbiturates no because he wasn't feeling good oh and so go with the but then there wasn't any milk left after she made the hot chocolate ah, there's and no milk they needed some for the morning for the kids cereal oh, so kids gotta have for the she cereal. was gonna go out and get some, but she was scared of the dark. Oh. So she said, Will you come she with me. Scared the, she murdered two, she murdered a woman. Well, we don't know that for sure. Oh. But she says, will you come with me? And he was like loony, but he said, no, okay. I got too so many she, he gets his pillow and his blanket and he goes into the car in the passenger seat and he shuts the door and he kind of like lays back oh, in, must this, be downers in the then. car. Yeah. yeah. And so she gets in and she starts He's driving in the car with his, Pillow with his blanket. Yeah. And so she She's starts driving. driving going to get and milk. And the kids are just left alone? I guess. They need milk. I think one of the kids was older. Like there was a 14-year-old. Oh. And so they're driving around and they can't find a store open at this hour. Oh, not at that hour. And so. Not in 1964. They had this 1963 Volkswagen Beetle. That was pretty new. And um, earlier that evening, um, the... Cork was driving it, and he had hit a dog, oh, and it had dog. messed up the steering linkage in it must the car. Have been a big dog. So she's driving around, and he's dozing in the front right front seat. Yeah. As she turns the car, she feels something go wrong with the steering mechanism, and she manages to control it for like a quarter mile before she notices there's flames coming near the back of the car. Oh no! Because in a Volkswagen, the Engine's engine in is the in back. the back. That's right. So then the car lurches and hits an embankment. Lurches and hits an embankment? Yes. Both of those things? So she, Lucille tells police that she bails out of the car and runs around to the other side to help Gordon, but he that side, Cork? the door was locked. Oh, no. And she couldn't Cork get him out. The door. And so and it's on fire. It's on fire. So then and she his gets... his blanket is like really flammable. He sleeps with a probably, super flammable blanket. Probably back then. Yeah. All, everything was really flammable well, back then. You only sleep with flammable. But everybody smoked, right? So you would think yeah. you'd have... So she gets a rock off stuff. the ground, a big rock, and she... Um, oh, luckily, there was a rock for her to save Throws it him. through the rear window. Oh, but the, saves by it. this time the car is engulfed in flames, and oh, she can't no. get him out. And now he looks like Freddy Krueger. So she's running down the street, and it's kind of in this desolate place. There's no houses. There's no cars. There's no milk. And she gets about a half a mile away and finds a lady who's home. Oh, and thank God for that lady. She goes in and and she makes two phone calls. 
Um, do you think before she makes the phone call, she says, hey, first of all, do you have any milk? Yeah. And then she probably not, did. For she, his hot chocolate. Oh, by the way, uh, my husband's on fire you know, with a blanket. Well, she Volkswagen. she was she was uh, hysterical. Oh yeah, and Oops. she was saying like, "What am I yeah. going to do when my kids when we have the cat the casket and there's nothing inside?" Oh, and what are we going to do for milk tomorrow? And what are we going to do for milk tomorrow? And so um, she calls the fire department. Yeah, but she's vague. She doesn't give him an address. Well, because she doesn't know it. She right? doesn't really know. And then she calls her lawyer, Harold Lance. Oh, she calls and him right away. Right away. That's fishy. You wouldn't even think to call your lawyer. But they were friends. Oh, they were really good friends. Oh, she's probably looking for the next hookup. Maybe. So the, when the police locate where she had called in the fire report, yep. they, by using they a were greeted, GPS tracker? They were greeted by her and her attorney. Oh, he got there already, huh? Yes. And so um, the sheriff's detective, Floyd Jones, Floyd Jones, y'all, later told the press that the coroner reports no injuries were apparently suffered by Dr. Miller before the fire and that he was alive when the fire started. Oh. There was no evidence of any kind of collision or accident. What? The investigation found that the car's gas tank was not ruptured, but there was a gas can in the back of the seat miss- of the bug missing its cap. Uh oh, she's caught. And she said that she was driving 35 miles per hour, but the car was in a low gear when it was found. Yeah, you can't get up to 35 in a low gear, y'all. Right, and the and also the right wheel was dug into the ground like it had been spin, spinning in place. Huh. And then the gas can had fallen over, but the milk was still upright in the back seat. Oh, so, so they had gotten the milk. She says she never got to the milk. Oh, no, they... she did. She went and she found a store. This was on the way back. Oh, you missed that. But the milk show. was still upright in the back seat, but the gas came, the gas was spilling all over. And they were like, well, how come the milk wouldn't have spilled over, too? Okay. So within days, they arrest Lucille. Oh, Lucille's finally arrested for her string of murders. And the police, they, they thought her motives were the affair. And then there was also a $140,000 double indemnity insurance policy on Gordon's life. How much? For $140,000. Double indemnity. Double indemnity is like if you have an accident. If you die by it. accident, you get like a, a big another chunk of money. Okay. So, Whoops, hold on, sorry. what's going on? Sorry, hold on. I can't. Hold on. What sorry. are you doing? Sorry, it was an accident. Turn that shit off. I'm trying. Sorry. All right. So, um, the rest was a fairly open and shut case. <laughs> Turn that shit off. <laughs> except, sorry. Except for the by the except for by the time Lucille went to trial in December 1964, she was visibly pregnant. She was, vi- oh, yeah, because. She had just conceived. Like mm-hmm. it's weird that she wanted to kill him when they decided to have the baby. Well, know? I know. One of the biggest witnesses at the trial was a woman named Peggy Fisk. She was an undercover officer in the department, and um, because Lucille's lawyer Harold Lance had apparently posted somebody at the jail to ensure that um, authorities wouldn't question Lucille. Really. So what they did was they took they sent Peggy Fisk in to pose as an inmate. And they put her in there with Lucille for a couple days to see if she could get her to say Confess anything or say something. Yeah. Um, um, but she didn't end up finding. She didn't end up hearing anything incriminating. She said that um, that Lucille had said she did. She did claim she didn't love her husband, but that she said she res- had respected him. Yeah, that's weird. She um, did. But she never confessed to doing it she or did, anything huh? like Not that. Not even in court? She said she wanted to, when she was released, she wanted to take the insurance money and get her children and move to Europe. Really? Is what she wanted to do. Um, so although the pregnancy might have helped her spare her from the death penalty, because yeah. that's what the prosecutors want, were trying to go after, yep. um, they didn't have much trouble convicting her of first-degree murder. They did or didn't? They did. They convicted her. They did on what? Yeah. When? Uh, she was subsequently set, sentenced to life in prison. She was granted the privilege of delivering her baby in a hospital outside prison walls. Oh. Um, oh but no. then the 1960s, life, you know, she got paroled. Life in prison didn't. Oh, didn't last that Didn't long. last that long. Right. And in 1971, she was released. She moved to Los Angeles area with her children. 
1973, she was arrested for stealing a $7 blouse. Okay. She was ordered to seek psychiatric help while her parole was continued. Hey, I killed some fucking dudes. This is nothing. That's right. She died on November 4th, 1986. Wait, are you telling me she died on November 4th, 1986? Oh, now this is where the music should have come (laughs) in. No, no way she died the same day as the greatest episode of any sitcom of all time, season three, episode five of Who's the Boss? What is this? Samantha, that's a hickey. The hickey. Who's the boss? The greatest episode of any show oh ever. God. Tony Danza finds a hickey on Samantha on, November, on the same day that this woman dies. I can't it's believe fate you. That she dies the same day as the hickey episode. I of can't Who's believe the boss. you, Samantha. And so that That's was a hickey. that was the story of the murder of Cork Miller oh, by it, Lucille Miller, and that and I got a, a lot of this. For yeah, tell us where you got the it. Malefactors mm-hmm. Register, okay. and it was author Mark Gribben. But it's I also a newspaper or is it a book? It is a website. Oh, it's a website. But then I also read. You read some things. I read a, a essay. Oh shoot! I can't remember the name of it because I didn't write any of it down. I was just after just I read it, it came gave off you some my context. Head. Yes. But this is not your original work. Right. Correct. You're not a journalist. That this is, is a parody podcast. But so I know I it's another. I know it's kind of another boring one-off. No, that's great. It was actually interesting. I mean, all these stories, I mean. I don't know if I believe that she did it, though. Because, Well, because. All those things with the gasoline and everything. And plus she died when Tony Danza said, Samantha, that's a hickey. No, I just, I don't know. Because, I like, I read another article that her daughter, who's now an adult, wrote. Yeah. And, what does this say? And she just, she just did it from her own perspective of, like, um, waking up one morning and there was police at the in the driveway and her mom was in bed and her mom said that her dad had died in an accident and and then um, she, but she was real upset and and then neighbors or friends of the family came over and took the kids and how then she had to go stay with these friends of the family she didn't like and what stuff like that. that. So what does that but, make you have doubt? I don't know the way she described how her mother w- was. It didn't. It's. It seemed like she was grieving for him a little bit. It doesn't just because you murdered somebody doesn't mean you didn't grieve for. Her. I mean, she's. But she. Up. But she knew that. All like those the, she her but her affair with that guy was over. It clearly Be- didn't matter. I mean, she was in and out of wanting to break up with him anyway all this time. I know, but she was pregnant. Yeah, I don't. I don't know when you're pregnant, you wouldn't want to kill the father. What if there's another dude? Maybe there was another guy she was trying to pressure like that first guy. I don't know. I mean, since she went away for it, I hope she did do it. Well, we'll never know. But when, after I Unless read... Unless you see her in hell. That's the only time you'll know. Yeah, I guess you're right, honey. Samantha, that's a hickey. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Samantha, that's a hickey. It's not that funny. Uh, well, it, it's... I guess because I've heard you say that. No, it hits home for my family because uh, my family all do a Tony Danza impressions at every Thanksgiving and Christmas. That's true. And we say, Mona, Samantha, that's a hickey. Angela. No, what did Jonathan, you say about Mona? get back on that bus. Mona, uh-huh. get my winner out of your mouth. That's not what you said. <laughs> What did he say? I don't remember. It was something about your cock. Though. Something about my cock, yeah. Anyway, but that, we leave you with Tony Danza saying that's a Samantha, hickey. that's a hickey. And that's going to be uh, every episode from now on. It's going to be uh, no. that's a hickey episode. No, it's not. No, but this is good. We're done. We'll, we'll pick up in the middle of October, next episode. Uh, Why not? Think, it's our podcast. Nobody it's our can podcast. tell us. Nobody can tell us Nobody what to do. Nobody can tell us whether to do it one way or the other. You can't tell us what to do, new listeners and old listeners. We have a new listener from Toledo. Uh, she found us on Instagram and asked us when we get to the 1800s <laughs> if we'll do if we'll cover uh, the Hatfields and the McCoys. At this rate, we will be um, probably 70 years old yeah, when we it'll get be to like, the 1800s. It'll be like in the year 2030. Yeah. Uh, but we will do it for sure. Yes. And I was going to find her name on here, but um, I barely know how to use Instagram. Because uh, you're an old Gen Xer. Uh, 
it wasn't on that one. It was a couple posts. I wonder how many Gen Xers know how to use Instagram. Okay, Melissa K, 1452, shout out. Uh, she said, hey, guys, I'm one of your fans from Toledo, Ohio. Love your podcast, but I was wondering if you guys ever get to the 1800s. Could you guys <laughs> talk about the family feud between the Hatfields and McCoys? And I said, of course we will. Um, and thanks for listening. But uh, she said, we're awesome. And she said, LOL, I'm caught up. Now I have to wait for you guys to put out a new podcast every time. But I wonder why she cares about the Hatfields and McCoys. I wonder if she's got, like, I have a paper due here in college. <laughs> Can you hurry up and do that? depend on our so idiotic. listen to you guys talk about it. At our least. idiot research. Yeah, hopefully you won't have that paper. Hopefully that paper's not due until 2036. Yeah. Because uh, at the rate we're going, it's taken us. Uh, it's going to be quite. We've, we've some been in time. 1964 for like eight episodes. It seems like I know so, my our son is like you're still on 1964. I know he's making fun of us. Anyway, Melissa K. 1452 from Toledo. She likes crochet and sleeping and working. Thank Don't you for listening. Cyberstalk, uh, no, for Christ's so, sake. Well, I just clicked on everything. Thank you for listening, Melissa. I already closed it, so I forgot what numbers she was. 14-something. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for listening. We appreciate you, and shout out to you, and tell all your friends. Make them listen. Like, yeah. It's it's legal to force somebody like, to listen to a podcast. Put toothpicks in their ears, like in um, Clockwork Orange, and make them listen. Like, I, I don't think you need, I don't think toothpicks help. Your ears stay open anyway. They don't? No, they don't have eyelids. Oh. No, uh, my wife, ignore my wife. She's insane. <laughs> She's insane completely. Isn't that how that scene went in there? No, that was her, I, I, their eyeballs. Oh, that was their eyeballs. Open, yeah, orange. Anyway, thanks for listening. Matt Truman's awesome. Yes. We love you all. Uh, Buy his I'm stuff. in love with all of you. Uh, it's one time, time to get out of here, Chuck I Berry. I Frenched Matt Truman. Uh, trying to get out here, Chuck Berry. He's in a bathroom. American Timelines, History for Jerks. Subscribe, rate, and review. Come on, we're at, we're at 29 uh, Apple reviews. We need one more to get 30. That'd be yeah. a big deal. And as soon as we get 30, and we get... And the 30th person wins a prize. Yeah, we Tell will them send... about that, honey. Oh, yeah. If, you become, if you're the 30th person that leaves a review on iTunes yeah. or Apple Podcast now, I guess, I will send you an empty... A pube. No, not a pube. One pube. Well, a pube will be probably... In the envelope. That's well, usually what happens no, when everything, you send mail. Everything I send anywhere accidentally has a couple of pubes in it. Yeah. I'm a hairy guy. Uh, but uh, we will send you an empty so bottle of whatever I drank last <laughs> while recording With a pube in it. Like this time, and there'll be a pube in the package, I'm sure. There's yeah. always a pube on everything I touch. Uh, but right now I'm drinking a Great Lakes uh, Brewing Company, Great Lakes IPA. Boom. With a pube. It's based in Cleveland. Uh, it's, look, it's got a pube on it. Like the bottle's got a pube hanging <laughs> off it. So you could get this bottle sent to you with a pube. I don't know who pube it is. <laughs> <laughs> we got a lot of people pube here. Anyway, thanks for listening. Peace. See you next time. American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. A history for jerks. Samantha, that's a hickey. Samantha, that's a hickey. Samantha, 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 Samantha,